Happy New Year and welcome to episode six of the Women in Sport podcast. We're really excited about 2020 and the work we're going to be putting out this year and the content on the podcast. And thanks to everyone who's been tuning in already and listened in 2019. We really appreciate the support and for everyone who's also donated to us since we launched the podcast. It's great to have your support. And as always, please keep your feedback coming in on social media and through our support inbox, support at womeninsport.org. Today's episode is all about Generation Z. Last year, we spoke to Suzanne Robinson, who's the MD of Happen, and they would do a lot of work getting into the mindsets and understanding people. And we're going to talk to her specifically about Generation Z. We also spoke to Salon Andy Hickman, who is the head of female participation at the charity Football Beyond Borders, and they work with young people across the UK, a lot of work in London as well. And we're going to talk to her about the young women she works with and their experiences. We're also going to have a few clips from our conference in 2018 where our Project 51 girls spoke to Anna Kessel, the journalist and author, about their experiences being young women in the UK today. We also have a video that will be online for you guys to check out, which is all about Project 51. As that project has come to an end, we've done a little highlight reel about some of the people who were involved in it and the impact it's had on their communities so please do check that out online as well we'll put it in the program notes so i hope you enjoy this episode looking forward to next month we're going to be doing a student episode and if you're a student and you've got some questions you want to get answered then please do send them to us through the support inbox we'll also be putting some specific questions out on the social media so just keep an eye out and thanks again for your support to kick things off, we want to sort of give a overview of the future of sport, if you will, and maybe sports future customers and engagers, and, and that would be, you know, Generation Z. So to talk about that, we have Suzanne Robinson from Happen. She's the MD of Happen, and she'll probably tell you a bit more about what they do. And Suzanne spoke at our conference in October uh, on a panel that focused on Generation Z. So we wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about that generation and um, you know their interest in sport, what defines them and their characteristics. So Suzanne, do you want to sort of tell us a bit of an overview about Generation Z? So Gen Z are what we know archetypally as an artist generation. Um, there are four generations, uh, four archetypes. Um, I am Gen X, so my generation is actually a nomad archetype generation. Um, everybody knows that uh, the oldest generation at the moment are called baby boomers. They are what's known as a profit generation. And then there is one of the biggest generations um, at work in our society today, which are Gen Y. <laughs> they are a hero. They are a hero generation. Um, we also know them as millennials, primarily because they were born at the turn of the century. You know, the, the noughties that started the year 2000, that was literally when um, a lot of Gen Ys um, had their formative years. Um, so Gen Z, the oldest of them, are probably around about 17, 18, and they're still being born. So this generation is quite influential. Um, from our point of view at Happen, we're interested in generations because you can use the understanding to anticipate how things are going to happen into the future. Because as I said, we all take these 
our core characteristics with us. This is not about segmentation. It's not about trying to stereotype people. But by um, working with generational understanding, hopefully it can also just give us um, a slight, um, the nuances of some of their behavior, um, why they are quite different. So whilst I might remember what it was like to be in my 20s, even in my middle teens, 12, 13, my, my generational influence is quite different to a 12 or 13 year old today, or even somebody who's 17 or 18. So um, this core theme of protection is really quite key for our Gen Zs, and I'm gonna explain that in a little bit more detail. Um, how does that manifest? Well, they are they want to be in control. They want to um, actually uh, know what's coming up. So in food and drink, for example, um, there's no surprises. They don't like surprise. They like to choose a restaurant. They like to look at menus. They like to look at the, go to places that they know what they're going to get. Um, they'll actually say that that the anticipation is actually part of the pleasure but you know if I think about my own generation the idea of going to a restaurant not quite knowing what I'm going to eat or what the, what's on the menu or the food is quite exciting but for these guys it, it's not and that's so that is literally a way of them holding and protecting their world uh, a lot more um, and that's driven by the fact that an artist generation is usually born at what we call a low point in society. So world events, things that are happening in the environment are bigger or more scary and more important than they are. And, and that's what's happening at the moment for our Gen Zs, if you think about it. We're living in a world of unprecedented um, change. We don't know what's happening. Technology is great, but it's also creating a lot of uncertainty about the future. You know, people don't know what jobs to do. And for Gen Zs in particular, this, this uncertainty is really prevalent. If you think about their, their school world, you know, what do you study for? If people are telling you in three or four years' time, you know, half the jobs that are out there could be gone... Then, then that creates a real feeling of uncertainty. So, so you can start to see how um, th this desire to protect themselves will, will manifest. So in food and drink, it's all about, I want to know what I'm gonna eat and know what I'm gonna drink. Um, they're driven by a desire for um, hygiene and cleanliness and protecting themselves from any from germs and from diseases or from and again it, it seems silly but for them it's it's a very practical very functional response um, down to the fact that you know they will choose hygiene ratings to choose restaurants they like visibility of the kitchens in restaurants so a lot of the you know McDonald's they're really opening up so you can actually see through to the kitchens a lot more. Some of the new places that are opening in London, um, the Nando's of these world, you know, places that they love to go to are engaging with this generation because they're very open, they're very transparent. And as I said, it's, it's driven by this need to control and protect themselves um, from what's going on. Now, some of that will be driven by world events. The other thing that's driving that is, is that they've been overprotected as children. We call them the cotton wool kids. Um, and that's probably because Gen X or Gen Y parents, in some cases, um, you know, have been nurtured and, and they want they want to protect their children from what's going on in this wider world. But but it means that they are now they're not as resilient as previous generations, but that's because they're not allowed to be. They're not allowed to just wander out and play in the street. Like, you know, I grew up and I could go out with my, come home from school and off we were, you know, we were out on our bikes and we were doing stuff. Whereas you've got a whole generation that can't do that now. And that has huge implications, especially when we come to talk about sport. 
Um, other defining characteristics, um, again, of an artist generation, um, very sensitive, and, and that probably comes through in some of the way they are creative. Um, and their creativity is not a blank sheet of paper. Um, it's more about wanting this desire to, to be co-creators, um, to be involved in the creativity, not to be passive consumers. So if you think about um, uh, a lot of the YouTube channels, uh, actually, I was quite surprised when we've done research with 13, 14 year olds, and some of them have like two, three, four video channels, you know, YouTubes, different topics. They, they, they do them with their friends, they create stuff. Um, and it's all about taking content out there and then and then playing with it and doing things differently. And it's interesting that some of the venues that they really, the brands that they connect with are brands that are actually starting to involve them more in the creative process. So Nike always doing a really good job. They do a good job with Gen X, with my generation. They've done a really good job at, at allowing Gen Ys to personalize you know, um, trainers, but now they've gone to, I think, an even deeper level of involving Gen Zs, you know, right down to the, you know, the end of the um, the shoelaces, the little ties on the end and the little details, you know, it's more, that's more than personalization, that, that is a creative exercise, um, so really involving them in that process. So, so their sensitivity um, and the fact that they've not been allowed to wander out into the wider world has forced them, I think, to, 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 to use the assets they have around them, the resources they have around them, to, to still be creative, but in, in different ways to other generations. In terms of sport, um, in any research you've done or when you've sort of um, navigated the space, how do you think these characteristics might be manifesting themselves in the decisions that young people are making to do sport and maybe the decisions that they're making not to do sport as well? <laughs> Well, I think one of the um, interesting things for me is that they're very, they're a very um, inclusive group of, uh, 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 sorry, they're a very inclusive generation. So um, they really trust, again, this desire to protect their world. They tend to trust their peer group far more than, than any other group. And they want to hang out with that group and they want to spend time with them, much more so than just having a few friends. You know, they've got the internet and that opens up a whole new world of connectivity for them. Um, and I just wonder if, I think some of the sports that are very, um, they're more fun and playful, seem to do really well with Gen Z when they're younger. Um, and some of the people that we've spoken to, when you speak to 11, 12 year olds, as soon as sport starts to get very serious, very competitive, very isolating, me against, you know, against others, um, people seem to, especially the girls, they seem to drop out or become less interested. Um, some of the boys enjoy some of the sports because they're team sports. But again, I think, you know, you're always going to have some who love their competitive spirit. But this sense of community and this sense of being part of something, um, not at the expense of other people, I think is actually quite an interesting dynamic. Um, and it will be interesting to see as they get older, whether they come back into competitive sports and what sports they do. Um, I think as children, obviously at school, up to a certain degree, they're forced to do certain activities. But again, I think um, we've heard from some of the, it's usually around about 12, 13 year olds, um, when we ask them what, what sort of sports they do, if they're not fun, 
they tend to want to switch out of them and find other ways, other things to do that are fun or inclusive. Um, I think the other thing to say is, do you remember I said before, they don't like surprises. They like to control as much as they can. And if you think about a lot of sport, the only thing you can control is your practice. You don't actually, you can't guarantee an outcome. You don't know if you're going to win. You don't know if you're going to turn up and, and win a prize or or do your best performance on, a, on the night. So it's a hypothesis, by the way. But I'm just wondering if that is equally something that, you know, when it comes down to making choices, will actually have a, a subliminal role to play. So welcome to part two of the Women in Sport podcast. And for part two, we're going to be focusing on some real tangible examples and learning from someone who works a lot with young girls. Salon Andy Hickman from Football Beyond Borders, which is a football charity, and they, they sort of use football to harness other areas that um, girls and boys can learn from. She's the head of female participation there, and she's going to chat to us a little bit more about the charity as well as her experience. So, Salon, maybe talk about what your role is and how it really sort of affects young girls in the areas you work in. Sure. So, when Football Beyond Borders was founded um, in 2014, we started with uh, one boys programme, basically, in Croydon. Um, this, the intervention was uh, for a group of boys who were very, very passionate about football, were creative, were energetic, um, but were struggling to get on in mainstream education. Uh, they started by going up and running basically a homework club. So it was an hour in the classroom, and if the boys got through their homework, they would run a coaching session on the football pitch, and that was by our founders, Jasper Kane, uh, Jack Reynolds, Tom Perez, uh, and Tom Bateman, who was the head of Year 11 at, um, at Lamb Frank at the time well the head of year now head of year 11 five years ago um since then so i came into the organization in august fpb have always kind of done bits and bobs with girls but um before before i came in the all the iterations had kind of been a pretty much the boys model um which had been planted and in, into the kind of a girls context the boys model has massively massively evolved so it started as this homework club it's now um, a fully fledged program that has five key components which involves a project-based learning curriculum a football themed kind of games constraint um, games led and constraints led football uh, curriculum um, it has uh, target setting reward trips social and emotional interventions um, and parental and school engagement as well so that's been developed over five years my role came in in August and it's been kind of do the same but for the girls program so what are the unique differences between girls and boys at this age group we mainly work with key stage three um, and how can we devise an intervention that supports their needs and has football within it um, but football plays a slightly different role I think within the girls program uh, so that's kind of what I've been working on the last six months. Um, before that, I used to be uh, at the at AOC Sport, which was the FA's uh, further education partner, where I was leading on the development of women's football for 16 to 19-year-old girls in further education. That was very much around football development, less about the education. And I'd kind of taken a lot of learnings from, from that. And we were trying to get those girls to engage 100 new girls who'd never kicked a ball before. And these girls were, were apprentices. Um, they were ranging from about 16 to 25. And we were saying to kind of go into the community, engage 100 girls to kick a ball for the first time and get them playing consistently. And that was a real challenge for those girls to get to get. We wanted them to focus on kind of the secondary school element to really tackle the, the drop off rate of, of girls participation in football. Um, and they just consistently came up with challenges. It was really hard to get sustained impact. It was really hard to get them to kick a ball for the first time or to find it meaningful or want to come. Um, and now I'm kind of working 
kind of so I was coordinating the apprenticeship program but now I'm like kind of cutting out the middleman and working in in secondary schools themselves and working with that demographic of girls um who annoyingly lots of people in the sector will say these girls are hard to reach because they are from I guess yeah different backgrounds that aren't white or middle class and people will say that they're really hard to reach and that phrase in itself I think is part of the problem I think if you bring football to a girl wherever she's from um, and you do it in the right way and you do it mindfully and tactfully and you get the right people delivering it and you build you do all of the steps before you even get to playing football then they're not hard to reach it's just we look at someone who maybe from a poor background on free school meals who isn't white who we say oh they're hard to reach they're not engaging in football but no one's really brought football to them in their communities in in a way that I think FBB does and in the first bit of the podcast we talked about sort of the background of a young young people especially young girls and characteristics which define this generation one that you work with kind of on a daily basis and something that's really unique about FBB and why we want to talk to you is that these girls are interested in football, but a lot of them aren't necessarily passionate about sport or physical activity. So how are you know the, the charity and you specifically engaging these girls and using football as the pool and the sort of interest, but then expanding that to other areas and increasing an interest in physical activity, but in a slightly different way, so it's less obvious, if you like. Yeah, so with the boys' methodology of the programme, we see football as kind of the hook, so... Immediately by having football beyond borders, it gets boys who aren't really engaged in school but love football to um, trust and believe in this organisation that's kind of coming in um, and working with them. And then we also really see it as a Trojan horse. So we use football in a way that that's got us in. We've got the boys' attention. We've got their trust. Um, now we can use football to communicate, um, yeah, to, to start working on many different things with young people around their attitude for learning, their behaviour for learning, um, and using a football-themed curriculum. So we put their interests, we're all about putting young people's interests at the heart of their learning. So our model follows a format of an hour in the classroom and an hour on the pitch, and that is the same for the girls and the boys. The boys, that hour in the classroom is more than likely a lot around um, football. So we might be talking about um, racism through football we might be looking at so the scheme of work at the moment we're doing um, sort of racism probably one of the best most tangible example but we do do lots of different projects on things like Raheem Sterling but one that we're doing at the moment a uh, really cool project is around the ultimate player so we're looking at um, we're bringing two players each week to the groups and we'll put them in juxtaposition to each other it's not that one is just like like outwardly better than the other it's we're looking at their different qualities so for example Pogba versus Kante do you want um, a humble player or do you want someone who's very confident and self-assured and we're not looking at them as footballers we're looking at them and the, the characteristics that they bring and we're having discussions with boys around you know which attributes should you have in different situations um, another scheme of work is kind of the perfect penalty where we're looking at mindfulness and emotional regulation around kind of what part of your brain do you need to be in to take the perfect penalty and therefore how can you um, notice your triggers how can you um, come back into your body by doing breathing exercises and then linking that back into school and their home lives that's the scheme of work that I've delivered with the girls one of my girls group um, and it hasn't resonated as well because it's been very football focused so I'm kind of trialing and erroring at the moment a lot with with what we deliver in the classroom for the girls it's 
I think there's so many more principles to FBB's model that are the hook. So it's one, we built a really, really strong brand that they very much believe in. Um, two, lots of the girls' programs have come from seeing what the boys have got next door to them. So they've they've been in the same year group as these boys. They're seeing that they're getting these meaningful relationships with adults that they have got someone to talk to every week. They've got someone who believes in them, someone who champions them in their school, someone who is there to come and do a lesson observation and support them when they're you know, at most risk of exclusion or come and do a one-to-one with them when there might be an internal exclusion. They're seeing all this kind of extra support and then on top of that they're seeing the reward trips and opportunities. They're going to Wembley, they're going to Premier League games and lots of our programmes have come from girls saying, actually, we want access to this and we, you know, that they're all things we need in our life and we've taken a step back and gone, yeah, they, they are. We just need to work out how best we use what we have as an organisation and use their assets as girls um, to design a programme that really, really works. And for the girls... Football is, I see it as a way, it's really core to kind of the group-based therapy angle that we're really trying to, to, to establish with the girls, which is um, it's a safe space to, to um, deal with different emotions. It's a safe space to um, work out how you work and relate to one another. Um, and also there is a, gen- a genuine hunger and appetite from every single girl that we work with, bar maybe one or two across the 70 or 80 girls that we have at the moment, who are, um, they're all desperate to become better footballers, but because there's not really a product that, I, I don't believe there's a product that the FA offer, that community groups can offer to this age group of girls, because I believe this is the kind of the lost generation where the FA have kind of delivered the, the Wildcats programme of like 5 to 11 and they've gone, yeah, this is a way of us massively doubling participation and we'll see the benefits of this in the next 10 years. But that generation of 11 to 14, which we're really working with, um, and um, and beyond, there's no product to get those girls to kick, football, kick a ball for the first time and that's where you see the drop-off rate. So what we do uniquely, I think, is having relatable role models in the classroom, um, girls who have been in their school or still are in their school, who are that bit older, who serve to deliver the programme alongside us, um, having a safe space where girls feel empowered. Um, we, we have a methodology where we really work on the self first, so we look at kind of emotional regulation, developing an internal positive narrative about yourself, really working on self-esteem, and all of that's done in the classroom, but also on the football pitch. Then we look on like um, how they deal with each other, what their relationships were like with their peers, boys and girls, how can we create healthy and meaningful relationships with one another, because I think that's a real big challenge in in, um, secondary schools with girls is constant falling out, Um, society has taught these girls that they have to be in constant competition with one another, um, and that's something we really want to tackle, but you can't do that until you've really worked on the self, and and then we look at raising their aspirations, exposing them to new opportunities, um, looking at world challenges, talking about kind of inequality, feminism etc so I believe the way that we get these girls to play football um, or to really feel part of football um, which is something I think they've previously felt very excluded from is one we bring it to them we bring it to the community we come with relatable coaches who um, will do a really really fun session two and most importantly is that we do that groundwork first so we go in and we have this we create positive group norms with with in the classroom and we're not just turning up with a bag of balls and a rack of cones and saying let's go out onto the football pitch and kick a ball because girls don't want to take up space 
girls don't want to physically move. They they feel bad for like literally flailing their arms around or running, um, and they have no confidence and they don't want to kick a ball and they will say that they can't and they can't and they can't. So until you've built them up, I hate the term empowerment, but I think there is a degree of empowerment. Well, I hate the term empowerment when it comes to women and girls, but as if because we would never talk about boys empowerment, but. Um, I think there is a notion of empowerment, empowering them to feel that they can take up space and that they do deserve to have a, a place in that pitch. And I think all of that comes from what we do in the classroom in the first place, the trust that is built between staff and student, um, and then making them feel comfortable to go out and try things. And it's okay to fail, it's okay to kick a ball with the wrong part of your foot. Um, and because we have that girls only friendly environment and a really lovely group norm, they all support one another through that process as well. So yeah, I think, that's probably the unique way in which we use football. They're not mad about football, um, but also we take them to football games, we take them to WSL games, and it was an incredible, incredible experience. And like, if anyone wants to go and watch a football match and have like the funniest time, go with like 40 girls from FBB because it's absolutely hilarious. Like, we got loads of messages from Chelsea saying that like, bring these girls back. It was they brought unbelievable atmosphere to Kings Meadow. So, so that was Suzanne and Salon. And now we're going to hear from Anna Kessel and our Project 51 Young Influencers. There's a lot that I learned in preparing for this panel. And, and one of the things that the, one of the panellists told me was about generational differences, which is really the theme of this panel. And so far, I and so many other people that I've ever met have always approached this issue of young people through the lens of a life stage. So young people will go through things in the playground and then they'll go through puberty and then all the puberty impacts on them. And these are the reasons sports bras, menstruation, social media pressure and body image that they have these issues around connecting with sport and exercise. There it is. But as I was preparing for this panel, I learned that it's so much more complex than that. We have generational differences. This generation is called Generation Z for a reason. They have different um, environmental factors impacting on the way that they're growing up, different to ours. And it's not only that we need to think about the differences that they go through, but we need to think about the differences that we went through and the baggage that we carry through our own generational um, impacts and ideologies. You know, apparently Generation X is famous for saying, just tough it out and get on with it. Um, if that's the approach that we're bringing, to trying to engage young people in sport, then that's probably not right. We need to work intergenerationally um, and use that cross-pollinisation um, to create change. So, uh, Morgan's 17, she's from Falmouth, and she's still studying at college. Um, she's a big boxing enthusiast, um, and she's recently completed her Level 1 coaching and has started up really a revolution in terms of girls joining the boxing club, which I think is fantastic. Um, in the middle, we have Verity, who is 18 from Bristol. Um, she's just finished studying at college and loves all different sports and activities and has been through quite a major life journey in terms of your health and illness and then rejoining sport and re-engaging in activity. Um, and Caitlin, 16, our youngest panellist from Coventry, um, who... Well, they're all heroic, but uh, Caitlin took on her school when they said that girls couldn't play rugby and football um, and made them change their minds. So there you go. These are the kind of girls that we're dealing with in Generation Z. They're very determined. Um, Morgan, shall we start with you? Tell us your story um, about how, how you felt about sport, how you got involved, and what were the barriers that you came up against? 
along the way? So I would say that um, I'd always be described as a sporty person, so my family have always been a good influence in sport. Um, but for me, um, I did rowing and indoor rowing. It wasn't very popular. Um, it was the club that I went to after school just to like just to do something after school because um, like education and studies was really difficult for me. Um, so sport was just a way of releasing um, the energy and what I wanted to do. Um, and I became quite good at it. Um, I became county champion in Cornwall. Quite and good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just a way for me of being good at something because academically I always quite struggled. Um, and then I had health problems, so I gave it up. And a few months ago, I started boxing, and at first it was so intimidating. It was full of guys. Um, and obviously, due to the health again, the club supported me in becoming a boxing coach. Um, so now I take on 25 guys on a Tuesday night to box. Um, <laughs> and they do listen, and it's really surprising how, being a girl, they, at first, you get the comments of, oh, you're a girl, you don't know what you're talking about. But showing them over time that I've got the knowledge and now I love going to Tuesday sessions and I've started up a women-only night in boxing um, and I have 25 girls which come every week and they love it and they don't care if they're red-faced, sweaty. Yeah, I have some girls which come full face of makeup and that doesn't matter as long as they come and they've released what they needed to, that's all that matters to me. I mean, yeah, you didn't mention the age of some of the guys that you're teaching boxing. Go on. Um, I've got some 21-year-olds. I'm 17, so teaching some 21-year-olds. I've also got 40-year-old men, so it's a broad range of ages, <laughs> as well as, like, 8-year-olds. So, yeah, a broad range. Just incredible. And, and the fact that you've got girls boxing, tell us a bit of insight into how you managed to get them through the door. Um, so... Uh, on our social media page, they didn't even know we had women-only coaches. So by posting that more often, they had an understanding of what actually is available in our club. Um, and just taking them aside and not only singling out the girls, but just showing them that we are there and we're available for them. Um, and just taking a step back and just like not singling them out, but knowing that they are important to us as much as boys and showing them that it's not only a men's sport that girls can take part in it as well and um, Morgan we were talking backstage you gave me a really great example as to why female coaches matter now bearing in mind in the landscape something like less than 10% of football coaches for example are female so they're, they're a scarcity why do they matter why do we need to invest in them because the girls just uh, like people think that girls are just good for the academic jobs and by doing sporting ones just show that it's not only for guys and I had a little girl who was uh, nine years old and she had just started her period she said I've started it for a few weeks now but I haven't been able to tell the other coaches because they're guys and I feel like they won't understand and I feel like they won't be able to support me so her coming to me just showed that like girls are so important in sport and that you can relate to other girls in sport and I was able to help her and it made me feel like what I was doing was really appreciative by someone else and by us thank you <laughs> Verity tell us your story so you've been on such a big journey for such a young age yeah um so I was always very sporty in school as in I was like an all-rounder so you'd have all of the typical house matches and I'd typically be captain and then you you build this persona of yourself so even like not in sport you still are that person people still see you as someone outgoing and confident and then you come into sport and they don't want to be on your team because they're like oh you're just going to annoy me because you're so driven and enthusiastic 
And um, <laughs> and then, so that's, so I was in a team um, and then you finish your GCSEs and then it's like the next point of your life. And I went off to sixth form at the same school. So I stayed with the same people, but then the sporting emphasis changed as it's not, it's not pushed as much. So it's not, it's not standard to play sports. So then you lose kind of that part of yourself and and that was quite difficult because I had anxiety at the beginning of sixth form from the just like the drastic change of everything and then I was hit with cancer and that was really difficult because from being so confident you're then completely knocked for six um everything changes your body image you're just getting puffier and then you lose your hair and you can't I had two operations and after each one you had a physio come around and say, so you need to do these exercises so that you don't get a blood clot and die or something drastic happens. So you have to do them. And then you start treatment and you have a pick line and then you're not allowed to do repetitive movements. And my only way of doing any fitness was through the gym, which is like cross trainers and everything that you can't do basically. So that was my only method of exercise because sport wasn't offered really at my school. And, um, so I had to give that up, um, give it up, and that was really difficult because that was such a huge part of my life for so long. And now I'm going through something really hard, and I didn't have that with me. And um, and at my hospital, the Teenage Cancer Trust side of things started up this program called Feel Real, which they just took loads of girls who were going through like the same treatment as me, same illness, and. Um, we just did loads of activities that we were allowed to do. So you can do climbing, you can do cycling, you can do air hop, like things like that, just to get that physical element back. And it was, yeah, it was really nice to come back to something I'd known and still feel fit, even if I really didn't feel fit at all, like in any way, shape or form, because you just look atrocious bold. And <laughs> you really do look like an alien. And my mum always called me Voldemort in the best spirits. But um, <laughs> but you, you, just, you take it on the chin and bear it, but then go in to do something with loads of other people where no one gives a shit at all. Like, you're all just really ill and you're just trying to do something to make you happy. And that was the nicest element because it brought back the team spirit that I had in school. So it was, that was nice. Why is sport missing from sick form? I think it, you, you reach an age where... So you, you, you go, you're from primary school where it's all fun and games and it's not really serious. And then you get competitive when you go into main school and then you have and it this is when gender comes into it because you have the set side of things so it's like typically football rugby guys and then hockey netball girls and then that's really pushed you have to do that there's no choice in it and then you do your GCSEs and you move on and then you actually get to choose and unless you choose a fitness program it just gets lost in all of your studies because this is the education time this is mm. you're going off to uni this is what we're pushing for. And I think unless you actively go out and seek a club outside of school, it just, everything gets lost because they're focusing on the younger years, not you anymore, because you're focusing on yourself. So it all just gets a little bit lost. And mm. um, there are like many elements within sport that shouldn't be lost at all. So that was episode six of the podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. As always, get your feedback coming through and stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be sending through some questions for students to get in touch with. If you're new to the podcast, then please check out the previous episodes, especially if you're looking for some inspiration for 2020. We have some, a great episode on challenge events, 
as well as menopause, Muslim girls and women. And if you're looking for other inspiration, we also focus a specific episode on girls' football. So if you're looking at starting new programmes, you're looking at trying to set up a new club, then please do take a look. There's some really, really useful information on our website and in the podcast. And we'll see you next month.